0: Very much, John. I don't know a lot about music, but I know that was very, very good. As a matter of fact, I feel sort of anticlimactic standing up here. Chris said to me, "Why don't you just get up there and close in prayer?" That that was phenomenal. Well, I want to thank you for being able to be here and share with you today from God's Word. Uh, I have been told that the student body of the Masters College is very generous and kind and very hospitable, and I'm going to put that to the test a little bit this morning. We Baptists do something a little bit different. Um, It's not just a monologue in Baptist churches, and some of you may come from Baptist churches, but when you've been touched or the Lord has spoken to you about something from His Word or something's been said that hits a chord in your heart, there's often the response, Amen. Amen. And so in order to make me feel comfortable as your guest speaker this morning, if you feel so inclined, periodically, just to let out with an amen, it'll make me feel so good. Amen! All right. You've got it. Thank you very much. I'm feeling comfortable already. The very fact that the Lord has called me to be a preacher in His church continues to be a phenomenal surprise to me. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. As a matter of fact, my home was very antagonistic toward the gospel. You see, my father was the ninth son of a Southern Methodist preacher from Illinois who ran off with a church organist when my dad was three years old and left his mother to raise nine boys in the middle of the Depression. And it killed her, but she got all nine of those boys raised. And as a result, my father would have nothing to do with Christianity. We never had a Bible in our home, and we were never allowed to go to church. And if I even ran around with somebody who said they believed in Jesus, that was the end of our friendship. And I didn't fully understand that until I got older. At the age of 19, a very good friend, family friend, invited me to their church, and I went to church for the first time at the age of 19. Now, as a teenager, I grew up in the 60s, and you probably have read about the 60s. None of you remember it very well. But uh, it was a very revolutionary period of time. The way I got around is I rode around on a chopped BSA 650 motorcycle. And I rode up to this beautiful white church in Canoga Park where this family went. And I parked my motorcycle right up front because you don't need a lot of space on the curb to put one there. And I came walking into church. I got there a few minutes late. And uh, it was a beautiful white church with a steeple and the bell and a classic-looking church. And as the ushers saw me coming in my T-shirt, my Levi's, and my boots, they were plastered against the the glass staring to see what this man was going to do, this young man. The first thing they said to me as I walked in the door, you can't come to church dressed like that. That was the first thing that was said to me. And as I was leaving, a man came up to me and said, the Lord doesn't want you riding around town on that motorcycle. And so I said, well, what does the Lord want me to go around town in? And he said, a used Chevrolet. <laughs> so that was my first exposure to the church of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's really phenomenal that the Lord would call me to become a preacher of His Word. After four years in the military, being trained by the Navigators, I came back and the Lord brought me to Grace Community Church. John MacArthur had not even been there a full year yet. Those of you who have been to the church know there's a little chapel on Roscoe Boulevard there. I think they have a Sunday school class in it and some small weddings now. But uh, we weren't filling that building one time on Sunday morning. That's phenomenal to me, but I could sit any place I wanted on Sunday morning when I came into that chapel. And, of course, the church grew, and we went to two services and three services. We built a gymnasium, started with one service there, two services, filled that, and then we built the worship center, and uh, the rest is history. And I had the privilege, as a young man going to Biola College and then to Talbot Seminary, of watching all of that happening and participating. Uh, It was the greatest experience of my life. The Lord has given me the gift to communicate His Word, and uh, I, I held every position I could that John would assign me on the staff and when I would preach for him when he was gone I enjoyed it so much and in 1980 he said "Uh, I'm not leaving but you are Uh, you've got a job to do someplace else so find where the Lord wants you to go and during the summer of 1980 I visited 13 different churches and God called me to Crossroads Baptist Church I followed a pastor who had committed a, a heinous sin and the church was Divided, and every day for the first year going there was like going to a mortuary. But God began to breathe life into the church, and uh, we saw the church grow, and it's been a great experience for me to be the shepherd of that particular flock. When I was asked to come speak, I was given three possible topics to, to speak on, and I chose the church of Jesus Christ immediately because that's what's on my heart. I've had the privilege of laboring in his church now for 23 years as as an associate pastor and as a senior pastor. And the Church of Jesus Christ is something that I love very much. And I want, if I can this morning, to communicate just a piece of that love to you. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ is doing a number of very good things today. Eighty percent of all the missionaries who have ever been sent out in the 2,000-year history of the church have been English-speaking missionaries. We are reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are some issues which are facing the church today in the 90s that I'd like to share with you, and I want to share three of them with you this morning. These are issues that I think the church must confront. I'm not talking about the unbelieving church. I'm not talking about the cult. I'm not talking about the liberals. I'm talking about the evangelical church of Jesus Christ from whom many of you have come and will go back into You are the next generation. And these, I believe, are many of the issues that the church is facing. First of all, the issue of biblical Christianity versus the culture. Our culture is beginning to infect the church of Jesus Christ, the evangelical church of Jesus Christ. And there are two extremes that I fear are going on right now that we must be aware of that we must address as God's people. The first extreme in dealing with the culture in which we live is what I would call a fortress mentality. And the fortress mentality says, let's pull back. Let's dig in. Let's build our walls. Us four, close the door and no more. We have got to be the bastion of of the principles of God's Word. We are holding to the truth though the rest of America goes to hell in a handbasket, we are the true church. That's a dying mentality. The opposite mentality is what I might call the supermarket mentality. Here's a quote from a pastor in my area that uh, represents this kind of cultural impact. He said, The church exists today simply to meet the needs of our culture. The more relevant the church, the more successful it will become. How do you like that statement? That's the other side. The fortress mentality versus the the supermarket mentality. And I believe that the church today has got to find that middle ground. We have got to be relevant within the culture in which we minister and at the same time hold stringently to the biblical principles that Jesus Christ left us 2,000 years ago. And my friends, we are vacillating back and forth on that issue. We've got to find a good line to walk. I'm sure all of you have read the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. The Lord Jesus Christ gives messages to seven specific churches. And He holds those churches responsible for having done what was wrong. And He commends them for having done what was right. Five of them were in serious trouble and two of them were doing pretty well. It comes to my attention, just reading that, that that the Lord will hold today's church responsible for going the way of the world, for allowing sin to infect it. And He will also commend the church for the things they are doing right. And because you are going to be the leaders of the next generation of the church of Jesus Christ, should He carry another generation. This is a struggle we have to pass on to you. And you can do a lot about it. You can impact it. I've written the church must maintain a balance between the absolutes of Scripture and the need to be culturally relevant without becoming an odd fortress of truth for the saints or becoming another worldly religious supermarket. And that's an issue I think that is plaguing the church of Jesus Christ in the 90s. Let me share a second one with you. And this one really gets me exercised. We are facing what I believe is an entire generation of biblical illiteracy within the church. Let me read a paragraph to you from Edward Farley. Can the church education be theological education? He wrote wrote this in Theology Today. Listen carefully, would you please? Why is it that the vast majority of Christian believers remain largely unexposed to Christian learning, to historical critical studies of the Bible, the content and structure of the great doctrines, to 2,000 years of classical works on the Christian life, to basic disciplines of theology, biblical languages, and ethics? Why do bankers, lawyers, farmers, physicians, homemakers, scientists, salespeople, managers of all sorts, people who carry out all kinds of complicated tasks in their work and home, remain in a literalist elementary school level in their religious understanding? How is it that high school-age church members move easily and quickly into the complex world of computers, foreign languages, DNA and calculus, and cannot even make the beginnings in an historical critical interpretation of a single text of Scripture? How is it possible one can attend or even teach Sunday school for decades and at the end of that lack the interpretive skills of someone who has taken three or four weeks in an introductory Bible course in Bible school or seminary? And friends, I have to ask, how is that possible? Well, I think the thing is that the church of Jesus Christ is losing one of its key responsibilities to teach truth to God's people. How can that be? That's one of the primary responsibilities that we have. And yet our people don't understand the basics. Unless there is a revival of fundamental Bible education in today's church, we may be responsible for educating the most illiterate of God's people in the church of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. That is a frightening thing to me. I'm not talking about you. You're in one of the finest Bible schools and you're getting a great education. But I am worried about the church of Jesus Christ in general today. There is a tremendous lack of understanding Would you turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy, chapter 4. I want to look at verses 1 through 5 with you for just a moment. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's be reminded of Paul's charge to one of his own disciples, Timothy. This is his last letter. He's passionate. He's given... Timothy, the key issues that he wants him to remember while he's gone in his absence and to be doing them. Listen to these words as I read them. 2 Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what, when the Apostle Paul solemnly charges you to something, you'd better pay attention. Get a pen out, get some paper out, and take notes. Because he has something very important to say who will be the judge of the living and the dead, by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Preach the Word, Paul says to Timothy. And if he could be here today, I think he would say the same thing to you. And he would say the same thing to me. Preach the Word of God. Make it your standard for life and conduct. Study it. Share it. Live it. I know that's why you're here. You wouldn't be here if you didn't believe that in the depths of your heart. So I'm only reaffirming the very reason that you came to this school. But you're going to find when you are catapulted out of here into the local church that most people won't feel the same way you do. I don't think that's a shock to you. Make the Word of God your very reason for living. Be ready in season And out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I'd like to change that. For the time has come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now that doesn't mean it should be boring. Sound doctrine can be given with illustrations that add light and build a structure for understanding. If you are bored ever in a church in which sound doctrine is being preached, that is the preacher's fault. Because the sound doctrine should be given in such a way. Food must be presented in a beautiful fashion. It must smell good. It must look good. And it must taste good. That's the preacher's responsibility. But unfortunately, there's coming a time, Paul says, when people won't want to hear those things anymore. Well, what will they want to hear? Well, let's read on. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. My friends, those words could never be more relevant than to our generation of the church in the 90s. That's a message that we need to hear. It's a message we need to live by. Chris has shared this morning that each has been given a gift from the Lord. Paul said to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. His ministry happened to be an evangelist. He was a church planter, and he did it very well. But we need to be reminded that we have a ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ has called each and every one of you to a ministry. And the Word of God says you are to fulfill that ministry. You are here at this school right now preparing yourself for ministry. Did you know the very reason you're here is part of God's call? That's part of your ministry. Do you think about that when you sit down to do homework? Or prepare for the, the next test? Huh? Don't cut corners. This is part of God's call for your life. Now, the reason I say that to you is I went to Bible school, too. <laughs> and there were times when I had a bad attitude. And I cut corners, skipped a couple of chapters, and I robbed the Lord of things that He wanted to say to me. There were also other times when I did understand my education to be directed from the Lord, and I gave myself fully to that. So I'm speaking to you from having done both. So dedicate yourself afresh and anew as this semester gets started to doing all that you can, to being in those classes, to doing that extra reading, to doing that paper just like you would be presenting it to Jesus Christ Himself. Preparing yourself for those tests. As if Jesus were going to be asking you how you did on it. This is God's ministry to you right now. I had a man come to me over the summertime. He would sent his son off to a university. And uh, he came into my office and told me, Jerry, he said, uh, my son has just come home from the university and said he no, no longer believes in my God. What do I do? Tough, tough question. He went away to a university and a Ph.D. who was educated beyond his intelligence. I tried to talk him out of his faith and was successful. He admitted to me, Jerry, I, I didn't make the Word of God my standard, neither for my own personal life nor in my home as my kids were being raped. And then he began to weep. The only thing I could do was go and sit beside him, put my arm around him and cry with him. Nothing could be done. The Word of God must infect you. It must be the very reason for which you and I live. Fulfill your ministry. You never know how long you have. You know, we think that maybe the Lord's going to give us 40, 50, 60 years of ministry, but we don't know that. I had a friend in seminary. There are a few people sitting here today who know his name. Mike McKillop. He was my good friend. We started seminary the same year. Mike had a heart for the Lord like nobody I've ever seen. He wasn't so good in the languages. And uh, his test scores didn't always come out that well. But Boy, he talked about the Lord all the time. I could find him in the chapel on his knees in prayer in the morning before class was started. He would be talking about the Lord at lunchtime. He was a wonderful brother. And uh, he started some Bible studies on the UCLA campus that turned into... Christian sororities and fraternities that are still going on today on the campus. He had a wonderful ministry. But about the second year in seminary, he came down with a serious brain tumor. He died. The Lord took him home. His ministry was to start those Bible studies, and that was it. Then God called him home. You see, we don't really know how long we have. And that's why we do everything we possibly can, here and now. To fulfill the ministry that's right in front of us. Do 100% of what's right in front of you. And then let God give you what's next. The third thing that I want to share with you that's confronting the church of Jesus Christ today is a drought of leadership. A drought of leadership. Charles Colson said, despite our understanding of what ingredients are required to make a good leader... The church is filled with ineffective leadership. Isn't that fascinating? We know how to do it. We're just not doing it. I don't know how you respond to that, but that that breaks my heart. Of the church squabbles, fights, and splits that I know about, every single one of them can be traced to poor leadership. This is this is a heartbreak for me. Let me ask you a question. You've read your Old Testament. Why is it that David had mighty men around him? You know? Why why is it that David collected mighty men? Did they come to him as mighty men? No, they were the outcasts of Israel. The reason David had mighty men around him was that David was a mighty man. And he produced mighty men. Because he walked with God. And he taught these men how to walk with God. And they became valiant. They were warriors. Great men of God because he was a great man of God. He killed a nine-foot Philistine. And they became great in valor as well. There is a priority that we're missing, I think, in the church. In terms of the priority of making leaders. They don't just happen. Leaders don't just happen. They must be created. While you're in 2 Timothy, go back to chapter 2 with me for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at the words once again of the Apostle Paul on this very important task of building and discipling, creating leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 says, You therefore, my son, be strong that is in be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the word dunamas. Dynamite, which we get our English word for. Him. Have the dynamite of Jesus Christ in your life. Be strong. We need strength today. Look at verse 2. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many generations of believers do you see in verse 2? Anybody? How many generations are in verse 2? Huh? Four. That's right. Okay, let's look at it again. And the things which you, Timothy, have heard from me, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to the faithful men, third group, who will be able to teach others also. You got it? Four generations. Paul to Timothy. Timothy to faithful men. Faithful men to others also. Now, in the Greek, there are two different words for others. Others of a different kind and others of the same kind. Which one do you think is employed here? Others of the same kind. That's right. What Paul is saying to Timothy, he says, Timothy, I want you to find men just like you. Faithful. Strong. Able to endure hardship. Won't wilt in the tough times. Stand up against those who will Criticize the gospel. Men like you, Timothy. And then I want them to find men and women like themselves. Faithful. See? Four generations. It's a fascinating concept. I hope that you have somebody in your life right now that you look to for counsel and guidance. You might even call them a discipler. Somebody who, who cares about your soul. And on top of that, I hope you have somebody in your life that you are helping. Somebody you're ministering to. Somebody you're trying to influence for Jesus Christ and helping Him to grow. That's verse 2 of 2 Timothy. Being disciples and discipling somebody else. You see, leaders don't just happen. They are grown. Look at verses 3 and 4. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has enlisted him to be a soldier. Now, in Paul's day when he wrote this, the only standing army was the Roman army. We know quite a bit about the Roman army. One of the things that they were not allowed to do was to get entangled in the affairs of the people they occupied. They were to keep themselves separate. They were to have contact with, but they were not to get involved, not to buy land or get involved in... Merchandising are the purchase uh, system of the people they lived with. And so what he's saying is, to be a good soldier, we don't entangle ourselves in the things of this world. I believe the church of Jesus Christ is getting entangled in the things of this world. It's strangling the church. And we need to learn how to break that strangle, that, that hole, that grip. The first time I ever was exposed to somebody who taught me about this was while I was sitting at lunch with a missionary by the name of Harv Oslin. Harv is the most godly man that I've ever known in my life. And uh, he invited me to lunch because he was going to show me an illustration he wanted to pass on to me. And uh, so he pulled out a piece of paper and he was writing this illustration as we sat over lunch and ate a little bit. It was one of those cafeteria type places where you take your food on a tray and take it off. A young man came by our table. Harv had just returned from Japan. And he bought the nicest watch I've ever seen in my life. This thing would do everything. It had 17 different functions. And uh, when you were all done with it, it turned out the lights and put you to bed. I mean, this, this watch was an incredible watch. And he was sitting there drawing this illustration for me. And the young man came by with his tray of food. He stopped at our table and he said, Is that that brand new Seiko watch? Did you know that this watch can do this and this and this? And he named off all the functions. And uh, Harv looked up at him and said, "Yeah, that that is that brand new watch." <clears throat> and then the young man said, "I've always wanted a watch like that." And Harv, without skipping a beat, took his watch off and put it on the man's tray. And then he went back to drawing this illustration. Now the young man stood there with his tray for a few moments with Harv's watch on it and he didn't say anything. He wasn't moving. And I kind of kept glancing up out of the corner of my eye to see what was going on here. I wondered if I was being set up first, you know, what, what, what's happening here? And he stood there for what seemed to me to be a long period of time, probably only a minute, maybe two. And then he went and sat at an empty table <clears throat> And I could see him over Harb's shoulder. So when Harv would look up from the illustration and catch my eyes, I'd look right in his eyes. And then when he'd look back down on the table, I'd look over his shoulder to see what was going on with this man in Harv's watch down there. And, and he picked it up and he looked at it a little bit. And, you know, he'd, he'd play with it and he'd push a button. And he, Finally, he, he put the watch on. And uh, he kept looking, you know, to see if this guy's going to come back and get his watch. And uh, he finished his lunch, he looked one more time, he got up, and he left. And I was by a window, I kept looking out the window. He, He just kept going, he got in his car, and he left. So, I said to Harv, Harv, I really appreciate the illustration you're showing me here on the table, but frankly, I haven't heard a word you've said since you gave your watch away. Could you explain to me what's going on here? I've never seen anything quite like this. He said, sure, Jerry, I'll explain to you. He said, "Take your watch off." I thought, "Uh-oh, here it comes. I'm gonna lose my watch now." He says, "Hold your, hand, hold your, hold your watch." So I said, "Okay, I got it." He said, "No, not like that. Not like this. No." He says, "Open your fingers, like like this." Said, yeah, took it out. Did see? If you hold everything that you have with an open hand, the Lord can take what He wants but he can also give you anything he wants. Thank you, brother. (laughs) Then he gave me my watch back. I was real relieved about that. He taught me a lesson that day that no class, no book that I could ever read could ever teach me. That is that all of our possessions should be held with open hands. Because when we close our hands around Him, God has a hard time getting His grace and what He wants to give us into our hands. See? For everything we have we hold with an open hand. If He wants to take it, great. Keep your hands open because He's probably going to give you something else back.